Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, I have Mark Platts with me from the Susquehanna National Heritage Area. Thank you for joining me today. Sure, it's great to be here. Thank you. So, and I, I um, know that we were on the same, um, uh, I don't think it was a podcast, I think it was a radio show with Randy Harris a few months ago uh, to talk about um, the Stephen Smith project. So I'm glad that, I'm glad that we were able to connect again. So tell me a little bit about your background. Well, um, I'm a native of York, Pennsylvania. Uh, went away for 18 years for grad school and work in places, came back 20 years ago to uh, start up with now the Susquehanna National Heritage Area, which is a uh, two-county nonprofit uh, focused on heritage and outdoor tourism and, and uh, preservation and conservation. Um, I'm uh, actually an urban planner by training, went to Shippensburg for uh, urban and rural studies a long time ago, and uh, then the University of Florida for uh, a master's degree in urban and regional planning. But I also minored in historic preservation there. Um, so they had a really strong uh, preservation program led by a gentleman who used to lead these uh, Nantucket and, and uh, Virgin Islands preservation programs mm-hmm. uh, back in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> that was an early, so, early preservation program. Yeah, yeah. They, they, I think the University of Florida, for probably because of that particular professor, they were an early leader in that. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, what, um, what, you know, and, and I now live in, and I live in Lancaster. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> when we moved back to the area, my wife said uh, she wanted some space between my my wonderful family and <laughs> that and that's not too much space. <laughs> it's not too much, but they usually call if they're coming to visit. Yeah, and uh, and and also being a two county organization, uh, you know, I had strong ties in York, uh, but I didn't have strong ties in Lancaster. So I said, well, I, I think I'm going to live there, you know, and and uh, it's really been great, you know, get to know Lancaster over these last twenty years. Very good. So what, what drew you into preservation and history? Oh, boy. Um, you know, I think it's a combination of early high school teachers, you know, history classes, uh, particularly about architecture. I had a great class on uh, a social studies class in York Suburban High School, and the teacher did a whole segment of like a week or two on architecture. And I think that got me into buildings. You know, I remember taking a train trip to the Woolworth building in New York, just so I could see the building I was writing about for a paper or something. Oh, that's um, great. Yeah, that was, that was really cool. But I, but I, the other thing I think it really connected me to preservation and story buildings and communities was I was really into railroads when I was a teenager. 
trains were my thing. Um, my dad would take me out before I could drive to chase trains and take pictures of trains. Once I could drive, I started doing that myself. But as a teenager, my mom was a parks director in a York City park. And I would go with her to the park when she was working in the mornings or evenings. But I didn't stay on the park. I followed the railroad tracks down to the yards in York. And I would just hang out uh, at the railroad yards and take pictures and write down engine numbers. And I was in this you know, it was, it was the 70s and the industrial landscape of York City was changing dramatically. There was still a lot of factories, a lot of freight and trains moving, but it was declining. Um, but I, I just spent a lot of time in this old historic landscape. And I think that train stuff and, and being in that environment uh, piqued my interest in historic buildings, particularly. Right. Yeah. Um, I also have had a long time interest in just American history, you know, so I read a lot of history and biographies and things like that. But um, I, I think it was the railroad stuff that got me into more about the preservation of buildings and the yes. historic buildings. Yeah, we um, probably 10 years ago now uh, restored one of the uh, buildings at Steamtown. We, re- we restored the windows. And oh, yeah. um, my husband, I know, was um, was talking to 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 the people that were actually restoring the the train cars, and it was very similar. They were having similar conversations. They were they were understanding each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and I'm I'm on the board of the uh, Maryland Pennsylvania Railroad Preservation Society over Muddy Creek Forks in York County, where they have the historic uh, Muddy Creek Village, the general store, and the old mill buildings, and and uh, home of the, the store owner. And they run excursion trains on these motor cars and they're restoring, you know, historic uh, railroad equipment. Right. Um, and, and it's, yeah, it is. The same. And, and that's an interesting place because it's both the railroad and the equipment right. and the general store and the mill. And they, it's really focused on interpreting life in that village in 1915, which was kind of like the high point of the railroad. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, when you're folks that are into buildings, railroad cars, or historic yachts as uh, boats as yeah, uh, yeah. we talk about um, that we now have here. It's it's almost the same kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah, I, I agree. And the process, the 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 process to get things done is very similar too. So so tell me about the Susquehanna National Heritage Area. Well, um, so we're a two county nonprofit organization. Um, we started out uh, as a state designated. Pennsylvania Heritage Area. Uh, Pennsylvania has been a leader in creating these multi-county heritage areas for since the 1980s. Um, I think Pennsylvania has, has, it might be Pennsylvania and Maryland have the most state designated heritage areas of any state country. And it's a program that was really created to try to use use, uh, history, historic preservation, uh, conservation and recreation as an economic development tool um, for communities across the state. And a lot of it started in very uh, distressed communities that were that were experiencing decline of industry. Right. Um, so actually the first Pennsylvania heritage area was actually in Scranton. Um, it was the Lackawanna Valley uh, National Her- Heritage Area, which is now also a national heritage area. Um, and then there's 12 of the 12 heritage areas across Pennsylvania now. And to be a Pennsylvania heritage, you have to, it has to be at least two counties. They want to they want to encourage partnerships and cooperation across normal boundaries, mm-hmm. um, and you have to go through a whole process to get designated. Which local co- members of the community in York and Lancaster did that in the late '90s, early 2000s, 
to do the studies and reports necessary for the governor at the time, uh, Tom Ridge, to designate York and Lancaster counties as a Pennsylvania heritage area. And, and I was came aboard soon after that in 2003 to be the first staff member. And then, you know, we grew the organization from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other, but there's also a national designation. Um, and that actually takes an act of Congress. Um, and we were successful in getting that done in 2019. Um, and it was really a 13-year effort. It's, it's National Heritage Areas are created by Congress individually, um, but they're, the program uh, is managed through the National Park Service. And over the last 40 years, there's been 55 National Heritage Areas. That's saying we, we were the last one so far, the 55th. Um, and it brings a, a whole new level of cooperation with National Park Service. It brings some funding from the National Park Service. Uh, you get to be part of the National Park Network and be promoted through the National Park uh, Service. Uh, so we have both the state and the national designation. Both of them have similar goals. You know, tell the tell the state and nationally important stories of the region. Try to help do that through the places where those stories actually happened. Um, be an advocate for preservation and conservation, and bring economic development to communities uh, through tourism. Uh, really focused on heritage and outdoor tourism. Um, so, um, we have a two county board of directors, half from York, half from Lancaster. Um, our staff has grown from just me 19 and a half years ago to, uh, I guess we have nine full-time staff and, and three part-time staff. Uh, we run the Zimmerman Center for Heritage, um, which is also our headquarters at Long Level below Wrightsville on the York County side, where we also do, uh, boat tours, uh, from here, um. This property was gifted to us uh, 15 years ago by John and Catherine Zimmerman, and it's a 1750s stone home on the river. Uh, we have the river in front of us and 180 acre county park, Native Lands County Park, right behind us. So, kind of a neat, uh, you can come here and have both of those experiences on the water or in the park. Uh, we also run Columbia Crossing River Trail Center for the Borough okay. of Columbia, uh, which is not an historic building, but it's on a very historic site. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, the, the borough built that seven years ago. We've been running it five and a half years, five and a half years now. And our staff there provides visitor services, uh, maps and guides, programs. We do exhibits. Um, it's really, it's the, it's the most busiest trailhead for the Northwest uh, Lancaster County River Trail that runs from Columbia all the way up to Falmouth. Uh, so it's a busy place, really, really pop in there in the summer, <laughs> particularly. So we have these two anchors of visitor facilities where we can share stories and do programs for school kids and the public and tourists and, and everybody. Yeah, yeah, that that's great. I did not realize that you had such a big park behind you there in Wrightsville. Yeah, yeah. well, and, and we played a big role 15 years ago in helping preserve that land. It was gonna be 400 homes and it was saved. The county turned it into a, a native lands county park. It's, it's, it includes the site of the last settlement of the Susquehanna Indian community. Mm-hmm that lived along the Susquehanna in 1675. And so that documented archeological site is in the park. And we provide a, a map and guide for going through There's a series of grass trails that go through these wonderful meadows up above the river. Um, and you can go back there and you feel like you're totally removed from everything. You know? Right, <laughs> I can believe, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah but you can come here to Zimmerman Center Park and hike up in there and have that experience, um, then go down and get on the water. Um, yeah, that's great. That's great. So, um, so tell me, uh, I, I've been watching the advocacy and, 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 and the, the 
media reports about the Mifflin House. So, so tell me, tell me about the the Mifflin House. Yeah, uh, the Mifflin House and Farm is uh, just on the outskirts, on the edge of Wrightsville Borough in York County, um, just out, just over the Route 30 Bridge. Uh, a lot of folks in New York and Lancaster go by it every day and have no idea it's there. Because uh, when you either come off the Route 30 bridge and start heading up the hill to the Wrightsville exit, or you start heading down the hill to the river if you're going to Lancaster, um, the property is right there on the right. I mean, it's it's right next to Route 30. Okay. Uh, but it's a historic farmhouse and farmstead. Uh, the, the house was built about 1800, the barn complex about 1850. Um, but it's most significant roles in, in sort of national history were in the early 1800s up to the Civil War. So the Mifflin family that built the house in 1800 after previous owners had lived in a separate, different property there. Um, they were Quakers. Uh, Susanna Wright Mifflin was uh, part of the, the Wright family that settled was now Columbia. Um, and uh, Jonathan Mifflin was from Philadelphia Quaker family. Uh, they married. Um, their families were all part of the Underground Railroad network uh, to assist people escaping enslaved, you know, enslaved conditions in the South, coming through York County to get across the Susquehanna and to Lancaster and either stay there or move on to Philadelphia or even Canada. So the Mifflins early on after building the house um, started uh, participating in, in, in harboring folks that, that were escaping slavery and did that for 40 years. Um, and there's pretty well, pretty good documentation uh, of that. That a lot of folks, including Randy Harris and others, have done a lot of research on this. Um, and uh, and they also worked with black and white residents in Columbia um, to get folks across the river, uh, right? Because there was a bridge after 1815. There was a bridge across the river, and then that, after that was destroyed, there was another one uh, was built in 1836, I think. But a lot of times the people looking for those escaping slavery came up and hung out at the bridge watching for people and it was dangerous to cross the bridge. So people from Columbia would assist in rowing people across the river, you know, which is, I paddled across there in a kayak. <laughs> it's, it's pretty intimidating. I can't imagine doing the rowboat at probably right. at night. <laughs> You'd have, yeah, you'd have to, yeah, yeah. I, the, um, yeah. my grandparents had rowboats on just a little lake behind their house and, I, you know, I, I can't imagine in the, in the heavy current trying to row. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know. So, so they, the Mifflin's had you know, played this key role in Underground Railroad until they sold the property in the 1840s. Um, and then soon after in the Civil War, when the Confederates invaded Pennsylvania just before Gettysburg and, and advanced to the Susquehanna River, um, a, you know, local militia and, and uh, volunteers and some, uh, retreating wounded soldiers and things uh, coalesced around Columbia and Wrightsville to defend the river crossing the bridge, the longest covered bridge in the world ran from Wrightsville to Columbia. And the Confederates invaded, uh, came down to Wrightsville eight, June 28, 1863. Uh, the intention was to capture the bridge, cross into Lancaster and either move on to Philly or Harrisburg. Uh, the, the Union defenders were outnumbered. Uh, but they put up a skirmish line, a, a battle line, just west of Wrightsville, part of which was on the Mifflin farm, uh, which uh, uh, was much bigger at the time. Um, and, the, and there was a battle for about an hour and a half uh, on the Mifflin farm property and other properties adjacent to it. The Confederates had cannons set up on the front lawn of the 
house uh, lobbing shells into Wrightsville. <laughs> so, oh, goodness. Yeah, it was, it, it must have been a kind of crazy, you know, sort of, I always describe the bridge burning and that whole invasion and what was happening as sort of like the 9-11 of, of those, you know, the way we felt of 9-11 um, with the, the attacks that day must have been the panic and feelings of desperation that were going on in the river towns as 3,000 Confederates were invading the, the county. But so some of the battle took place right on this property. Uh, the Union had to retreat. They tried to blow up a span of the bridge that didn't work. So they set the whole thing on fire and burned the entire bridge to stop the Confederates. So that, that was a big turning point. And probably, you know, Gettysburg would just be a little town along the Lincoln Highway um, uh, if that hadn't happened, because everything would have changed. Right. You know, the bridge had have gone. They would have gone. There in. would have been a battle, but it would probably not at Gettysburg. Right. <laughs> so. Um, so it's, you know, the Mifflin property has this really sort of two pivotal moments in 19th century history. It played a big role. Um, and so that's really the core of its significance. I mean, it continued to be, a, you know, a farm till this year, you know. Um, but about seven years ago, um, the family that owned the farm had been uh, decided to develop some of their properties and uh, in partnership with the York developer for industrial development. Mm -hmm. And that had started back in 20 years ago. Uh, most of it was west of the farm, but the plan was to build warehouses around the farmstead and preserve the 10 acres in the farmstead. Yeah. But with the shifting warehouse market in the last decade, those plans changed and the developer wanted to tear down the entire farmstead and build a much larger warehouse, mm. uh, too, too much larger warehouse. Right. And that started a grassroots effort. You know, local people in Helen Township and Wrightsville really raised the alarm uh, that, hey, we, we could lose this very historic property. Um, we, you know, supported the effort to preserve it, but we didn't. It was really a grassroots effort that started it. And, and then Preservation Pennsylvania stepped in, um, Mindy Crawford and her team, with some uh, legal help and started helping to challenge that demolition. And they were successful all the way through the courts. Um, but under Pennsylvania's planning laws, it's pretty easy to change restrictions on a piece of property, which this had some restrictions about saving the property, the, the farmstead. And so the developer basically submitted a new subdivision plan that would have removed the restrictions and probably would have gone through. Um, right. Uh, but by that point, Preservation Pennsylvania reached out to us. Uh, we reached out to the Conservation Fund, a national group that helps preserve lands and properties around the country. And the three of us, created a partnership to go to the developer with a different proposal to say, look, how about if we buy it? Right. <laughs> how about if we give us some time and, and we'll see if we can put together a coalition of funders um, and, and, a, and a proper use for this property. And they said, yes, uh, and the township and the developer agreed to a two-year moratorium in 2019 um, that basically gave us breathing space to, to try to start seeking funding. Right. Yeah, in. have a plan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it worked. I mean, we we got minutes from from private foundations in New York for almost a million dollars. We got the governor's office committed redevelopment capital assistance program funding to the project. Pennsylvania DCNR, the conservation agency for the state, awarded a grant for acquisition to the conservation fund. Um, York County Open Space Land Preservation Program awarded grants to us. Um, and we've got commitments from your county to help fill the last uh, piece of funding. And there's still even some other funding out there. So when all this came together last year, the conservation fund felt confident enough that they could enter into a purchase agreement with the uh, 
the farm family uh, right. with the developer too. And that was completed. The purchase was completed at the end of April of this year um, based on the commitments we have. Um, so the conservation fund has a, has a national revolving fund where they basically fronted most of the money to buy it um, minus the state grant that they're going to get. And um, they're holding it for up to a year or two. Um, we're have a management agreement. So we're actually responsible for taking care of it right now. Yeah. And within a year, we'll get the rest of the funding secured and finalized, and then we'll buy it from them. Um, okay. And the reason we got involved in such a, normally, you know, we try to help facilitate things. We don't know. We don't, except for the Zerman Center, right. we don't own a lot of property and things. Um, but during this process, um, one of our board members said, you know, this is really a significant property. And, and, and we're now, and we had just become a national heritage area in 2019. Like this could really, we could be the lead on this property. We could preserve the house as a place to interpret the underground railroad story. Mm-hmm. We could preserve the landscape, preserve the landscape as a place to tell that story and the civil war story. And the barn complex, which most of it dates from 1850, but there's some more modern additions from the 1940s, it lended itself to be a sort of adaptively used, more creatively used to be a like a national park style visitor center for the entire national heritage area, all you know, York and Lancaster counties. Oh, that's great. Right off, right off Route 30. Right 30 it'll yeah. be visible. You can easily get to Lancaster and York attractions. You can get to the river quickly. And that's where we're going. So the, the vision is. We buy the property next year from the conservation fund, and um, then we start the process of redeveloping the buildings and the landscape. You know, it's going to take five to eight, right. maybe yeah. ten years. <laughs> this is this is uh, one of those decade projects. Uh, going to have to be a capital campaign and more grants and things. But uh, we've got a community task force organized with representatives from York and Lancaster counties, from various you know constituencies that can help us. And we had our first meeting in May. We're going to be meeting more into the fall. And uh, I'm really optimistic. This, this project has attracted nothing but positive uh, support. I mean, the local community right still loves it. Helen Township loves it. The county commissioners have, have gotten behind it. Uh, the state officials. So yeah, that's uh, great. I think it's going to be great. Yeah. So, sorry for the long explanation. No, but it's been a I, long I, I, I appreciate that. Um, I and I and I have a question. This is probably more for my own um, my own understanding. Um, when you said that, like it was easy to change the protections, was that were those like protections within the ordinance? No, actually, you know, the the, the property was not protected by any okay. township ordinance. Um, it was zoned industrial commercial, but. When this, the original subdivision for the industrial park mm-hmm. was approved back 20 years ago or late 90s, um, I don't know why it ended up in the plan, whether it was requested by the township or right. the landowners, but there was a restriction on the 10 acres where the farmstead is. There was a separate lot created for the farmstead, and it said uh, farm buildings, like it said, farm buildings to remain. Okay. Like, that was, was the protection. The Farm buildings to remain. And the, the courts, the, and the township first, and then Preservation Pennsylvania took it up to Commonwealth Court. Right. The courts determined that that is a subdivision restriction. It was approved that way, and they have to remain. You cannot tear them down under this current subdivision. Right. But the simple way to get around that is to submit a new subdivision plan. Oh. Uh, that 
removes the restriction, changes the lot layout. And then just get that approved. Yeah. And just get that approved. And there's not much, if anything, in state law or the township ordinances that would give the, the township the ability to require that, right. you know, to keep that restriction. It yeah. was obviously somebody agreed to it back then. And I think it was the family, the blessing families. They had a family member who wanted to keep living there. Mm-hmm. And so they might have done it, you know, right. but it was on there. If you new subdivision plan removes it, then you're not under any requirement. Hmm. That's interesting. Thank you for yeah. thank you for that explanation. Um, yeah, it's 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 in the 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 politics of preservation are interesting. <laughs> well, you know, some communities have pretty strong preservation ordinances and stuff, but there's not been a lot of. Uh, well, as a national heritage, we're going through a, man- a national heritage management plan right now. Uh, that's required by the congressional legislation that designated us. And, and we've been working with, you know, reaching out to people and getting input. And we have a draft plan out for public review right now. But one thing that plan identified was, you know, we have a huge amount of national register eligible mm-hmm. properties in New York and Lancaster counties. But, you know, very, you know, we have, and we have a number on the, in the national register, we have some national landmarks. But based on what we actually, the resources we actually have, we don't have that many actually officially listed. And even if you're listed, it doesn't guarantee their preservation. Yeah, there's no there's no protection associated yeah. with that. Yeah. And we have some preservation districts and stuff, but a lot of that effort has waned over the last 20, 30 years. A lot of it happened in the 70s and 80s, a lot right. of historic district designations yeah. when there was a lot of saying, grassroots momentum for preservation. But I don't know there's been many historic districts created. <laughs> or, no. You know, so, no I, yeah. so we're gonna try to help maybe spur some more interest in that kind of thing too, as part of our national heritage area. I I think that's a good thing. I'm, um, I'm part-time executive director of the preservation trust uh, in Lancaster County. And we're working with um, one of the um, municipalities to get a a main street designation. And one of the, one of the requirements for that is to be a national register district. But I can't get any of the consultants to call me back to 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 write one. I'm like, I, I said I probably could do it, but it's going to take a lot of time. I would rather have somebody else do it. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of work you know, yeah, to do all that. Um, so, but yeah, I, I agree. I think that there's a lot. Of, there there are people who do it, but I think they're pretty busy too. With you know, because I think they take projects all over. Yeah, yeah. Well, an organizations like Preservation Trust. When was Preservation Trust founded? In the in 60s the late 60s. 70s. Yeah, late the late 60s. Late 60s. Mm-hmm. Historic York in, in York, I think, was the se- early 70s. Right. Um, there was this real sort of effort back then and, and focus on preservation. That's when the National Historic Preservation Act was passed right. and a lot of yeah. focus. And there was funding back then more. Um, and, and a lot of groups, you know, were created then. A lot of municipalities did a lot of work. And I think that's when my interest started. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. As a kid. Uh, but it, it, it's not as aggressive as it used to be. Yeah. No, no, it's not. It's not. So I guess that kind of leads me into my next question. Do you see any trends or challenges um, in preservation? Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that one, you know, trying to find ways to spark renewed interest mm-hmm. um, in sort of communities embracing preservation as a tool and the value of it is... is uh, it seems more challenging than it used to be. Um, but at the same time, um, I think there's been 
a lot more creative use of historic buildings in the last 20, 30 years than there right. maybe was before that. I, I think, you know, the initial preservation effort focused on preserving buildings and their historical integrity, right. preferably for their historical use uh, or preserving them as relics and museums and things like that. Whereas what I get excited about is adaptive use of historic buildings, you know, and I think in Europe, they're far ahead of us on this. Right. You know, but I haven't been, I've only been to England, you know, but I, I read and see things going on in, in, in Europe and, and they, they don't have a problem with juxtaposing modern uh, additions right into historic structures right. and integrating them together and creates a really exciting environment and preserves the historic resource. Mm -hmm. I think we're getting better at it. Um, right. I agree. And particularly in like Lancaster, New York, there's been some really great projects in the old warehouses and you know the tobacco warehouses and the factory buildings, some of the commercial buildings uh, that are doing that. Uh, it's just, and then historic tax credits I'm sure help and you know, spur a lot of that on, um, which means we need to keep supporting them. Right, yeah. State and national tax credits. So it can make it level the playing field for developers to, right. to take on an historic building. Uh, but, you know, we're also you know, a fairly conservative place. It's kind of like, uh, well, people can do what they want, you know. Right. And yeah. The, the whole sort of issue. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, hey, it's my building. I can tear it down if I want. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you could. <laughs> <laughs> You're allowed but, to, but should you? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, if, you know, if, if you don't want to keep and maintain and and use a historic building, don't buy it. Right. No, I, I agree with you on that. That that is that's my position also. <laughs> I mean, uh, but we also have a lot of respect for history here. People like traditions and and are proud of our history. So um, you know, I've lived in I've lived in Florida, DC, Seattle. Um, you know, we're fortunate that there's we probably have a critical mass of historic structures in, in our two communities. Right. Yeah. than a lot of other places have, you know, like we still have a lot of stuff, but it's the picking them off one by one, you know, you're going to lose time them. Yeah. and you realize, wow, we've lost a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> now, and that, and that's true. I, I, I really agree with that. Um, and, and people, yeah, it's that, it's that kind of that drip effect where you don't, you don't realize until, until it's, you know, pretty far gone, how many you've lost. Yeah. I, but my favorite example of that is when we were growing up in New York, uh, Green's Dairy um, was an old fashioned uh, ice cream and milk dairy in New York uh, that had a wonderful 1930s uh, dairy building out near the York Fairgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, and it was the kind of place where you, know, you go out there and they had an ice cream parlor with a wonderful old green tile and a counter yeah. and booths. And the ice cream came in little paper cups inside of a metal cone thing uh -huh. you know and the, the, the same women worked there for like 30 years in white uniforms with the little white hats yeah. and you could look through a window and see the making the it milk bottling oh, uh, machine running right yeah. so you could have your ice cream you can see there's a real attraction yeah well green's got bought out by a bigger company in the 90s and i remember coming home in the early 2000s and I went down Highland Avenue, New York, where the dairy used to be. I was like, where's Green's Dairy? It's not here. You know, I can't find it. I'm sure it was here. Right. <laughs> and I go home to my family who had, you know, I've been away 18 years. Yeah. They, they continue living in New York. And I said, what happened to Green's Dairy? And they said, what do you mean? It's 
it's on Highland Avenue. I said, no, it's gone. And they didn't even know. They, oh, didn't no. even, they hadn't even noticed that the building had been torn down. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. York Fairgrounds apparently purchased it for, you know, they wanted some more parking more in their fairgrounds. Yeah. Yeah. And they tore the building down. And, and it was one of those things where it's like, it, it was such an institution and part of our lives. Yeah. And when it was gone, people didn't notice. Until I see point oh my goodness. Which, yeah. I don't know what that says about <laughs> things. Well, but they, hadn't been eating ice cream. Thing. <laughs> they hadn't been eating ice cream. Well, no, they've been eating ice cream. But <laughs> it just wasn't green. Um, but, uh, but that's the kind of incremental thing that happens. And then make, you know, at some point you realize, oh, all these things are gone. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, so how can our listeners support your efforts? Well, I mean, uh, number one, they can get involved in all the wonderful organizations right in their own community. So if you're in a, in a borough with an historical society or historical group, I think getting involved in those groups and supporting them, you know, those who, who we want to partner with and, and we want to support because they do a lot of the grassroots efforts, uh, you know, Preservation Trust in Lancaster County and, and Historic York are the lead advocacy groups in both counties. Uh, and I know it's, you know, every, you know, time for people these days seems to be really stretched and, you know, people only have a bandwidth for so much right. activities, but getting involved in, in, in the other nonprofit organizations that are preserving history is important. Uh, for our own organization, we are a nonprofit. Uh, also, uh, we're a regional one and we're fortunate to have, uh, you know, good state and federal support as a state national heritage area. But, um, you know, we're also, you know, happy to receive contributions but okay. uh, but more importantly come visit our visitor centers and experience the, the the programs we offer and get your kids involved and take a boat ride when we have our we have this historic boat we're going to start using later this summer for boat tours uh, take a tour of the Zimmerman Center or Native Lands Park come to events at Columbia Crossing uh, because a lot of those you know are, are on the ground facilities are designed to engage people in their local history Right. And give them an experience uh, right here in our own backyard. And, you know, you don't have to travel far to have great experiences, either in the outdoors. Or and, and most Canada. people miss the things that are closest to them. Yeah. yeah, yeah they do. This is going to this is going to run out. Um, so if you have more to say, we can just let it run out and then log okay. back in. Um, well, yeah. I'm, I'm fine. I, I, okay. You know me, I, I could talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for your, um, for your time and your, um, um, and if there's anything that the, that the trust can help with, let me know. And, you know, we can okay. work, we can work on that too. Yeah. Uh, web- Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.